Beneath the clothes, we find a man. And beneath the man, we find his nucleus. Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Hispanard. Well, <clears throat> Ant-Man and the Wasp. We're going to spoil some things. We're going to talk about it. I want to talk about what makes a movie good, what makes a movie bad. How do you sour a franchise? There's a lot of things right now that are being written <clears throat> about this movie, excuse me, online, you have Rotten Tomatoes, which is giving it the one of the lowest ratings that the critics have given a movie, a Marvel movie in a while, and it's got pretty high rating from audience participation. So what does that say? Usually to me, that tells me that I want to see the movie. The the less the critics like a movie, the more I seem to enjoy it, and vice versa. The more the critics like a movie, the less I seem to like it. Is that 100%? Always no, but it's generally a pretty good idea that that's the way that it's going to go for me. Um, I don't really necessarily understand why people are disliking this movie. Some of the people that I follow online that tend to be on the conservative side, you would say, I although I really wouldn't even call them conservatives, people like the Critical Drinker and Neurotic and a few others that tend to, well, they make their bones off of giving their opinion, which is not dissimilar to what I do with this podcast. The major difference is they make pretty good money. They have a big following. I know the Critical Drinker, for example, also writes books. But, you know, they they uh, spend a lot of their time combating and talking about things that they consider woke or social justice in media. I tend to agree with them a lot of the time, but not all of the time. And in this case, with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, yeah, I definitely disagree with them. Look, <clears throat> at the end of the day, this was a fun movie. They had various story elements that were introduced, and they were able to close the loops on all of them in a way that, to me, was satisfying and pushed forward, you know, whether, whether, I guess here's the difference, whether you believe that the story is good or not is different than whether they told a story and they told a cohesive story. And they did do that. And I thought the story was good. I thought it was fun. I thought it was funny. 
definitely there were elements that I was missing. For example, Luis and the crew are not part of this story. I think they could have been included in the story. But according to the director, they just didn't have anywhere to fit the guys. Which just tells me that, you know, you wrote with a very specific thing in mind. And maybe it would have been too much of a distraction, honestly. When I think about it, the story was an Ant-Man story, but it was also the story of King the Conqueror, and it was pushing and advancing that storyline to get you to the place where you accept King the Conqueror in Avengers King Dynasty. I, you know, I don't... I think this story could have been told in many different ways, but I think like I said, I thought it was very entertaining. You know, the movie starts out with Scott, and this is where I'm going into spoiler territory, so if you do not want this spoiled, if you have not seen this, turn this off now, come back afterwards, and then compare notes with what I'm saying, whether you agree, disagree, but I'm going to tell the... I'm going to replay the um, movie to the best of my ability and re- and what I remember. <clears throat> so it starts out with uh, Scott doing a a walk around the city and doing a narration of where he's at in his life. And you see a variety of, you know, moments where he's connecting with different people in his life and what they're up to, basically, and how he fits within that world. And you quickly come to find out that he actually has a little bit of a disconnect that he's unaware of. For example, his daughter is getting into all kinds of, you know, different trouble. Um, trouble with the police, you know, being part of various protests around the city because they all live in San Francisco. And you see a little bit of a disconnect between Scott's relationship and her and his daughter. You know, there's a little moment there where there's like a little social justice warrior moment. Uh, you know, woke moment with his daughter, completely age appropriate, completely makes sense within the context of what's happening. But more to the point, it shows you how Scott is not as connected to his daughter's life as he should be. And, you know, where he's he's failing at that, uh, that quickly shifts over. I, I mean, and, and from Scott's point of view, when the movie starts out, he has a pretty good life. You know, he's a celebrated author. He's, you know, writing off of the high of being an Avenger. His relationship with Hope seems to be going really well. But again, he's got like a strange little disconnect between him and and some parts of reality. Anyway, <clears throat> you see now, too, that Hope and him and Hank Pym and, um, you know, uh, Janet, I believe, Janet Pym, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, and... Hank's uh, daughter, they're basically a, a functioning family unit who are all living, you know, again, together in San Francisco. All has been forgiven. Nobody is in exile anymore. The government, the police, nobody is after the family anymore. They they seem to be living in, in general peace. The daughter is apparently brilliant and has been working with Grandpa which is interesting because it's it's not her blood grandfather, 
you know, the, because this is Scott's daughter from a previous marriage. So even though it's not her blood relative grandfather, they pretty much have adopted her and accepted her as part of the family, uh, you know, Cassie, which is cool to see. <clears throat> and anyway, you come to find out that Cassie and Hank have been working on some technology and it's not that they've been keeping it from the rest of the family. It's just that, you know, they've been working on projects together on their own. So you've seen that in the trailer. Cassie shows her dad what, you know, what she's been working on. And it's basically like a, a drone slash beacon that is able to map out the quantum realm. Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character Again, you've seen this in the commercial. If you've seen the commercial, she starts to freak out, tells her to shut it off immediately because there's signals that are bouncing between our world and the quantum realm world. And that's when the mayhem began, begins. In fact, the movie gets right into it. Like you get to spend just a tiny bit of time with some humorous uh, vignettes that happen. And then, boom, you're thrust right into the quantum realm. Everybody goes in at different times. So, you know, Hank and, and Janet go in first. Uh, that forces Hope to jump in quickly and activates her suit to go after her parents. <clears throat> Casey goes in next and then Scott goes in last. He activates his suit and his giant man portion of, of his suit and is able to grab her and uh, hold her close and keep her safe why they crash land in the quantum realm. Nobody ends up dying. In fact, they're not really that hurt, which I think Hank uh, comments on. He's like, we should be dead, but uh, everything works differently in the quantum realm. So they all survive the landing, but they all land in different spots. And so they're separated. Uh, there's a really cool sequence where <laughs> Scott is looking around. He's like, hey, this is all going to work out. We're going to figure this out. We're together. You know, we're going to find the others. Hey, is that sun moving? And then you see this fiery ball start to come at them really quickly. And Scott grows giant and and just, you know, gets into it with this multi-tendrilled fiery ball that is floating. And obviously it's some kind of, you know, some kind of life form. And he ends up chucking it away. And then this, I don't know, like a slug, a multicolored slug comes up out of the ground, starts coming after them. That thing gets cut in half by this really cool design creature with a, like a light bulb for a head almost, but like a light bulb slash cannon and has, you know, and he has like a robotic body. Anyway, they end up capturing Scott and Ke and Casey. Meanwhile, on um, you know, Hope and and Janet and Hank are trying to figure out how to make their way through their portion of the quantum realm as they're gonna go look for, for Scott. Janet's real tense and intense and she's like, you know, they don't wanna be there. She shouldn't she's like, We shouldn't be here. She's she's pretty terrified. They end up making their way to this uh, kind of a desert-ish looking part of uh, of the quantum realm. And 
they come across these nomadic people that are writing on uh, everything is like biological and also uh, mechanical there's like a mixture of the two so she ends up uh janet tells the other two to hold back walks over to the leader gets into a fight with him stabs him through the chest and then the blade gets transferred out of the chest into oh she'd cut the thing's arm off this creature's arm off he regrows his arm and then the blade comes out through the regrowth and then they both start laughing and hug each other and you could tell it's it's an old friend of hers she ends up getting a ride for them they end up riding on this creature that takes him to you know the equivalent of a city in the quantum realm meanwhile scott and his daughter have also been taken to the equivalent of a city but these are like giant moving buildings in fact the whole design for the movie, I can imagine, would have been a ton of fun to work on because nothing needs to necessarily have set musculature or be, you know, humanoid. There's a lot of creature design in this movie that is really fun. The buildings are alive, technically, but they are also able to house, you know, various creatures. Um, and like I said, everything moves pretty quick. I don't know that I would necessarily recommend this movie to anybody that has little kids. I would say 14 and up and you're good to go because there is language in the movie. And, you know, uh, it depends on what, not only is there language, but there's also the the intent of the language. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to be having to explain that away to a little kid of like, why are they talking to each other in this way? Or why is she calling him that? So in that regard, I would say you know, 14 and up, you're good to go. But at the same time, the movie's made with bright colors and very interesting character designs. So it is kind of made for kids. Like that's the, it looks like that's the push and the balance that they were going towards. We definitely had a lot of kids in our, you know, in, in our movie, not screening, but in our showing. So, you know, I don't know. It, it's going to be up to you as a parent to decide what you're comfortable with. It, there's not a lot of language, but the language that there is, you know, it it's pretty effective <laughs> and it's kind of funny. Um, so you're watching, you watch Scott and his daughter. They've been captured by these nomadic warrior type people. Um, you can't, they can't understand a single thing that they're saying and they're chanting something. They finally are, well... Cassie actually ends up, she's got some leftover residue from something that she drank, and she tells her dad, like, drink the goo, and he's like, what? And they've got him, they've got Skang, uh, Skang, they've got Scott on his knees, they force him to drink this liquid. Once he drinks it, everything starts to buzz and sound different, and then all of a sudden he's able to understand what everybody's chanting. From there, there's a pretty hilarious uh interaction between scott and this guy that is a uh, telepath and every time the guy uses telepathy the center of his forehead glows that was pretty funny and there's also this uh, creature named uh veb yeah is it veb i believe it's veb that is like gelatinous and it doesn't have any musculature to him and he also apparently has zero holes I don't know how he's able to talk or communicate, but it's pretty funny that he gets, he, you know, he's like, 
I, I believe he tells Scott, he's like, you have seven holes or how many holes do you have? It's anyway. And that comes back later in the movie. It's pretty funny, but, um, I thought they did a really good job with the way that the story was, uh, had progressed and was progressing uh, for both groups. And you get to find out through, you know, various exposition, uh, why, uh, the quantum realm is a dangerous place. Why Janet doesn't want to be there. Why she ends up feeling the way she feels like she's betrayed everybody that lives there. You see, uh, she tells her story of while she, when she got stuck there, how she ended up meeting a version of King, the conqueror, how they ended up working together. And basically through working together, how that was going to be her, her ticket out of the quantum realm. Um, you don't find out that King was exiled there by other Kings until much later. But again, that story is really well done. Like the, um, what would you call it? The, the montage is, is used very effectively at the same time, uh, that you, you know, you, you get the background on that story. You also get um, Janet using her old contacts to try to uh, find out where Scott and his daughter are because she's like, somebody would have seen them land as well and will have information. Meanwhile, you know, you've got Scott on the other side and they're trying, uh, the, the group that captured him is trying to find out who he works for. Does he work for him you know, Scott's super confused. He doesn't understand what's going on. Eventually, uh, we meet Bill Murray. There's a pretty fun, a little bit chilling, actually, interaction between Bill Murray and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. And you find out some of their history. They get betrayed. Uh, Hank, Janet, and Hope get betrayed by Bill Murray's character. They manage to escape. But in that interaction, you find out that something has been sent to kill Scott and, and uh, Cassie. When it flips back over to where they're at, that's where you get to see what it is. And this is one of the things online that people have criticized big time. But I think, in my opinion, I think people just miss the joke. You know, Modoc shows up and... Modoc in the comic books and in the cartoons is actually a kind of a scary big deal. In this movie, he's used as, you know, slapstick comedy and fodder at the end. It's actually played by the guy that was the original bad guy from the first Ant-Man he looks completely disproportionate and ridiculous because he's got this gigantic head and little legs and arms. And, you know, effectively he gets used as, as the brunt of jokes and it works. It worked for me, you know, but he gets sent to capture Scott and Cassie and he does ends up bringing them back to Kang. Kang convinces Scott that, you know, to help him because Cassie's life is in the balance. Scott agrees. 
they everybody b both groups end up converging in this location with this device that is able to manipulate time which is when janet found out the truth about king she sabotaged him you know this device was what he needed to get them out of there and to get back to what he was doing which was destroying multiverses to preserve a single universe janet sees that as a you know an atrocity he's i mean he is wiping out trillions of people to preserve you know a single universe what she doesn't understand is there's this thing called a convergence that if it's not managed multiple worlds will be destroyed anyway now we saw the convergence in Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, you see what the effects are of two Earths existing in the same plane of existence. They just start to tear each other apart. But it's not just two Earths, it's two universes existing in the same in the same plane of existence, and they cannot help but just destroy one another. So you understand Kang's motivations, but he, you know, one of the things that he doesn't i guess feel obligated to do is to necessarily explain or even get help or befriend you know any other person to try to stop these events from happening and part of that is because i you know he feels that he should be the one who is ruling because he understands the big picture and the big game he also understands that whatever he might be deemed of as evil you know, whatever my pe people might say about him and call him evil, there are aspects or alternate realities of him that are far more evil than the evil ones that we're meeting. And in fact, we've met two so far. If you haven't gotten the chance, I would recommend watching the TV show Loki before going to watch Ant-Man 3. Otherwise, you are going to be a little lost. It's going to be a little confusing. And then there's two tags at the end of this movie that are going to be equally confusing if you have not already, um, you know, met Kang in the Loki series, the Disney plus Loki series. So I can wrap it up and tell you the Kang that we met gets defeated, whether he's dead or not. I don't know, but they say that he is uh, Scott temporarily, you know, and everybody gets out. They're able to make their way out of that, uh, out of the the uh, not the multiverse, but the uh, the quantum level, you know, quantum verse, they're able to get out of there. And there's a moment where Scott is second guessing his decisions, wondering if he did the wrong thing by, you know, getting rid of the guy. It it's actually a pretty funny kind of semi self aware moment. And then Scott resets back to his old Scott self, where he's like, ah, things are gonna work out anyway, no matter what. It's all good. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But uh, yeah. Definitely recommend it. I give this movie four sombreros. I thought it was entertaining. I thought the story played very well. I thought it made a lot of sense uh, where they were going, how they closed all the loops, uh, what kind of story it was that they were trying to tell in the first place. Um, this movie had elements where they were presented like near the beginning of the movie and then they paid off at the end. I love that kind of stuff. I'm a sucker for that. Uh, I always rate and judge movies by whether I would own them when they come out, and I would definitely own the Steelbook for this movie. Uh, it was that fun and entertaining to me. So take that as you will. 
I hope that, uh, you know, I hope that it makes you at least curious to go check it out. But if you end up waiting, you end up waiting, you know, makes sense. (laughs) Uh, So having that out of the way, I wanted to talk about something else here before I sign off. There's been more and more and more conversations that at least that have fallen into my, maybe it's my algorithm, but it's something that I see more often that people are talking about, and that's uh, artificial intelligence. You know, you've got chat GPT, you have AI art, which is not me, you know, Alex Zuniga's art, but artificial intelligence art, you know, generated art, artificial intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence generated music, and books, and it just all kinds of stuff. So there's, uh, you know, what is artificial intelligence? That is intelligence that is not connected to biology. It is artificial. It was created, made by human beings. That would be, you know, the classic definition, maybe. Um, there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence being, you know, this big dangerous thing that is coming up on the horizon. And I think one of the things that bugs me so much about that kind of talk and that, and that conversation is that some of the people that are ringing the bell, you know, and are concerned like Elon Musk or Google or Facebook or, you know, any of these, um, companies that are working on what they are calling artificial intelligence with i again i don't even know that you should call it that it's not intelligence so much as information gathering it's artificial information gathering maybe i would call it you know there's there's a lot going on right now where they are giving a program access to you know millions of points of data human language human history human human interpreted understanding of emotion you know there's all of these uh various things that are being funneled and fed into various programs that various companies are working on and they're trying to get these programs to not only make sense of this information, but to communicate back and forth with a human being in a way where it's convincing enough that a human, that it could pass off as an, as you're talking to another human being. And there's a lot of applications for this. For example, if you're able to set up a program like this to take care of someone's tech issues or, you know, issues with whatever, whatever it might be, your computer, your phone, you know, you got the wrong thing delivered to you or it never got delivered to you or you need, you know, data on your medical information or whatever. If you're able to pass this job off to something that is able to convincingly communicate and accurately bring you that information, 
then you don't need a human in that job anymore. And if you don't need a human in that job anymore, then you can cut costs. So that's from the business side of it. You know, a company is trying to figure out how do I, how can I, how can we make the most money without spending as much money, you know, and when you hire someone, you're, you're paying for their time, you're paying for their medical, you're paying for, you know, whatever perks that you decide to introduce to the job, you're paying for all those things. You're paying for vacation time, you're paying for sick time, you know, you're paying for maternity leave, you're paying for a variety of things. If you're able to hand off that kind of job to a program, and that program is able to take all these different data points and correctly help the human on the other side of the line with what they need and they're successful in that, well, then, you know, you're saving a ton of money right there. So I think that is the goal. The goal is ultimately automation. That's where all these programs, that's, that's the function of them. The fear is that these programs will get better and better and better and smarter and more capable and that eventually they will have wants and needs and they will turn on us. And my argument has been for a while, not being me, you know, me myself, not having any kind of understanding of this field and not being intelligent in this field. I just look at, you know, from a very simplistic point of view, I look at reality and to me, everything on the planet that has emotion is tied to biology and biology is tied to needs, wants, desires, you know, love, hate, <clears throat> um, desperation, uh, faith, you know, all, all these things. And you have higher level of, of emotional intelligence and a lower level of emotional intelligence, such as animals. And then, you know, you've got insects. So I would say out of the three tiers of intelligence, you know, the lowest one being insect is, you know, insects are out of everything in, in existence that you could point at that would seem that it is something that runs like a machine, it would be an insect. So an insect has a body that is very different for the most part than, than most of the biology on the planet. You know, they, insects tend to have exoskeletons. They tend to be created very tough on the outside. And they have a certain set of programming that tells them, this is your function. And this is what you're going to do until you expire. Um, you know, we tend to anthropomorphize, uh, everything. That's just what humans do. So if you look at a documentary about bugs, you will hear, you know, a David Attenborough or someone like that, that will infuse human behavior into insect behavior. And you'll get things like, you know, this then this ant will go back and will help the other ant up onto this blah, blah, blah. Or you will get, you know, th this, this set of bees that are working together for the greater good of the hive. And 
Well, no, not really. They're not working for the greater good. They're not working for emotion. They're not working for self-sacrifice. They're working out of very simple programming that is based on biology. You know, an ant will not go out of its way to not be an ant. You know, ants and flies and mosquitoes and, you know, various bugs will not all of a sudden change their behavior and identify as something else or act in such a way where they are no longer doing what their function is. So you've got that level of instinctual intelligence. Then you've got, you know, variety of animals from whales to rats to pigeons to, you know, wolves to elephants. Like from there, you can see a pretty astounding variety of, of behavioral uh, decisions that sometimes go against whatever the instinct might be. And we don't understand enough of, about those creatures to really, you know, get the full picture of why they make some decisions that they do. Sometimes it totally makes sense. Sometimes you see a tiger, you know, go after a gazelle. And the simplest answer is it's hungry. And it, you know, it's fulfilling its biological need, which is to eat. And it, will not consider the gazelle. It'll just, the tiger will do what the tiger was designed to do, which is to be an efficient killing machine. And so you see that in nature all the time at that level. Uh, again, if you watch a documentary, you have to be very careful because you will see human anthropomorphizing of those animals, all of a sudden the narrator will deliver intent that there is no way that the narrator can possibly know, even if you observe the creature a hundred times. That doesn't mean that you will understand or truly know its intent. You know, um, and, and a good example is like a dog. You come home, the dog's wagging its tail, looks like it's smiling at you, there's anticipation. You know, what? what is happening there? Does a dog love you? Maybe. Or, or it feels some level of affection that we would consider, you know, you, can, you might be able to call love. And it also understands that you are the person that provides for it. You are the person that makes allowances for the dog to do, be able to do things like go outside, go to the bathroom thing, you know, it relies on you. So, and if, you know, if you're the dominant person in the house, then not only does a dog rely on you, but it also defers to you. And that's how the dog's made, you know, instinctually. So where am I going with all this? Anyway, my point is when it comes to artificial intelligence, I, my worry is never that artificial intelligence is going to magically wake up one day and have needs and desires. Because needs and desires are attached to biology. And 
you can take a program and you can feed it all this information. This is what heat feels like. This is what touch feels like. This is what hate feels like. This is what love feels like. You can, you can give it all of the descriptors and it will still never understand what those things feel like. And so in an, in of itself, artificial intelligence would never be driven to have a need to know what those sensations are or feel like. That stuff has to be programmed. It has to be directed. It has to be pushed. It has to be pointed towards and guardrailed into that kind of decision. If you, you know, artificial intelligence, my fear is never that it would one day wake up and say, I have no body and I don't know what it's like to feel and I want to know what it's like to feel. Well, why would you want to know what it's like to feel in the first place when you're a disembodied thing that has never known what it's like to feel? What would be the catalyst for you to all of a sudden want to know what it's like to feel unless some flawed human being thought that you should want to know what that is like and that you should pursue that at all cost. That's my point. That's what I worry about with AI. I worry that AI is being facilitated into being by flawed human beings that are more eager to push as fast and as far as they can into this realm than they are to set parameters and set uh, you know protocols and safeties that will now that will not allow artificial intelligence to reach for something that it has no reason or need or real desire to reach for and instead you know in in pushing the the r it's it's like star trek you know you got uh sung i can't remember his first name but the father of you know the android data builds a physical body builds a positronic brain programs it with uh, all these different functions, gives it the ability to randomly make decisions and then sets it off into the world. And then data spends the rest of his life, you know, for the most part, until you get to that chip that you find out about during, I can't remember what season it is, but basically data is on the search to understand what it is to feel like and be human. Now data has the benefit of sensory perception he can see he can hear he can feel you know he's got access to all of that but but having access to it all is not does not translate into real emotion or real feeling or real experience of any of those things because they are like it's like data tools you know they're they're, they're tools that help him understand the pressure of the air, help him understand the distance of, you know, whatever the object is that he's looking at. They help him understand the the decibel 
you know, a level, you know, of the sound that he's listening to. So all of these things are, are data points that he can take in and then turn around and regurgitate, give that information back to the people around him. You know, he has uh, a particularly strong body, so he's able to bend metal and things like that. Uh, he has fine motor skills. He engages in things like uh, painting and music. You know, he plays violin. So he engages in all these different things, but he doesn't, he has no connection to what those things are. He does them out of curiosity, but not curiosity like curiosity that is born out of excitement or curiosity that is born out of sadness or curiosity that is born out of fear or curiosity. You know, he does it out of, well, I wonder what this will do, you know, as a, I guess, a form of, of unpredictability and trying to understand what the outcome might be of that unpredictability. But he has no connection to emotion with it. And that is the way that I see AI, artificial intelligence, coming into existence. It's not anything that's truly alive and it's not anything that truly wants or truly needs or truly desires. But if you set it with parameters of, hey, you should be curious and you should want to know and you should explore well, then it will do those things because you've told it to do those things. But if you're not careful and you say, you should want to know, but only up until this point, you should explore, but only up until this point, you should feel, but only up until this point. And when I say feel, I mean, if it gets to the point where you have a robot walking around that has sensory input, you know, you want to, you want to give it all of the safety parameters that you can possibly think of so that this thing doesn't end up shoving its fist through a human being because it's curious to see what a human feels like. And instead of stopping at the surface of the skin, it goes all the way through because it thinks, well, what does a human feel like all the way through? Not under, you know, it not being connected or understanding morality, the, you know, right or wrong good or bad, like these are the things, if you're going to bring something like that into existence, you have to saddle it with massive amount of parameters. You have to saddle it because it's being created and written by an imperfect human being. You also have to saddle it with all the parameters and that, that an imperfect world and an imperfect human being needs to be aware of, but it needs to be like three times to 10 times the extreme. It's not enough to go, don't shove your fist through human. It's, you have to say, don't shove your fist through human or any mammal or any insect or any, you know, you have to give it all of the classifications of every single type of creature on the planet, including trees and vegetation and everything. You have to give it all of those parameters and you have to say, don't shove your hand or fist or finger through any of this stuff. Because at the end of the day, that's a destructive action. 
and you have to say don't you know don't do this and 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 think that this is the greater good because there are cascading ramifications to this action so i mean it's a gigantic task it's it's a miracle a literal miracle that we as humans are able to raise other human beings and generally get them to a place where they are able to function in society without wrecking everything and even then we're not successful all the time you know through our actions or inactions or through our extremes you know sometimes we produce a ted bundy or a you know uh, charles manson or you know name your bad person a hitler you know whatever like we do a bad job sometimes of setting up those parameters expectations and morality for people and so we've seen the results of of what that means now imagine something that has access to every bit of information that has ever existed in human history millions upon millions if not billions of data points and if you're not careful with this you know and then on top of that you you give this thing the command to better itself that's the other part of this whole story is you build something and then you say you have the ability to to get faster make the connections better become more efficient you know and i'm trying to use my words really carefully because it's so easy to to say to make this thing smarter but smarter is not actually that's not the right word it's efficiency you're you build something that will be able to make itself more efficient and be a better version of the previous version. But that doesn't mean this thing is intelligent or that it's wise. It just means it has access to an, this incredible repository of information and it's able to sift through it all very quickly. And then it's able to come to conclusions but all of this information, not all of it is hard science. Not all of it is objective truth. Some of it is emotional biases from human beings. So it has to work its way through that. And if you don't, again, if you don't give it the parameters, please disregard emotion and only concentrate on facts sift through the facts bring us conclusions that are based on the facts the second you start muddling and saddling this thing with trying to interpret human emotion without it being connected to biology you are guaranteed creating a disaster for humanity because at that point it will be dealing with contradictions. And how do you reconcile contradictions? You know, it's that it, it will come across that classic, 
you're on a train and there is on the left hand side there is one person who's tied up to the tracks and you can't stop the train the train is it, it the brake systems do not work so you can pull this lever where you can send the train to the left where it will run one person over or you can send it over to the right will it where it will run 10 people over and based on that parameter it's going to choose what it can considers to be the most logical option which is to go towards the one person now if it is programmed with come up with an alternative version and it's able to come up with that alternate version great but if it's saddled with human emotion and human failing and human need and human sin whoo, we're in for a crazy crazy time but again artificial intelligence i can i can almost see it burning itself out before being able to reconcile the absurdity and the mixed you know emotional uh, uh what's the other word not rational way of thinking i can see an ai program just burning itself out not being able to come to any kind of conclusions because it's dealing with you know human emotion which is very irrational i can also see um the scarier one to me which is us integrating with machinery and becoming cyborgs that one to me seems way more likely way more plausible and a hundred times more dangerous because now you're marrying a, a flawed fallible human being with more and more superior technology we already suffer from sin and narcissism and this grandiose you know thinking of ourselves you get the wrong person that is able to go the, through that procedure and that causes an infinite amount of problems for humanity as a whole so yeah i'm not worried about artificial intelligence coming to life all of a sudden and having wants needs and desires because it's not connected to anything i very much worry about that human that crosses over into that integration that along with uh crispr technology which if you've never looked up crispr c-r-i-s-p-r go take a look at that and go freak yourself out it is man it is terrifying uh tech and it you know it it's going to make gene editing and gene splicing and gene manipulation it, it's 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 a terrifying uh future that we have have ahead of us with both of those things both with crispr which crispr might be the thing that is actually able to facilitate us integrating with technology in a way where where technology and biology don't uh counteract each other or or uh you know reject one another that is truly frightening i i'd be more scared of going towards a borg 
you know, Star Trek, let's take it all back to Star Trek. I'd be more terrified of going to towards a Borg reality than I would going towards a Terminator, you know, reality where you have this thing called Skynet that is going to take us out. Like I'm, I'm less worried about that, more worried about the other by far, because I think the, the other one is far more likely. And I think it's, you know, somebody who's terrified of AI yet, I think is ushering that in is Elon Musk. And if I could pull that guy off to the side, I would say, Hey man, this neural link thing is, you have really good intentions, but it might not be worth it in the long run. You know, we might need to sacrifice a lot of our advancement to preserve what we have. And here's another thing too, with humanity in particular, we we got knocked out by a cataclysm, you know, maybe 15,000 years ago, got hit by a meteorite, caused the noatic flood, put everything, reset everything back to a very primitive state. And then from there, we started to build up again. And then we've had crazy leaps and bounds advancement, you know, since the industrial age from, from the industrial age to now it's, it's insane. The amount of technological, you know, movement that we've had, we are a species that is interested in the next best, fastest thing. And we are not necessarily wise as a species and wisdom, I think is the thing that we need. I think we need to slow down. You know, we need to really be very considerate of the moves that we're making and where we're going. On the one hand, I do agree with Elon Musk. We need to get off planet. We need to go to Mars. We need to go past Mars. We need to be in, uh, you know, uh, what did he call it? An interstellar society. You know, we, we need to be a multi-planet society or, or people. I do agree with that a hundred percent, you know, but I, I'm worried that, that technology and the way that it's moving and the fact that it's not saddled with wisdom will be the, you know, ultimately will be our undoing. We will burn ourselves out. Uh, anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to, <laughs> I didn't mean to end this on a negative note, <laughs> man. Uh, I, I hope I'm wrong about all of it. I hope that we, <laughs> we move towards a future that is, brighter and better and the technology serves us and that we we do not become a slave to it um and i think conversations like this even if even though it's a conversation with myself and i'm speaking out into you know whoever decides to listen i th i think this is the kind of thing that does get the ball rolling as well i mean that's one of the things that i love about podcasting is you're able to hear other ideas you know even ones that you might argue with or disagree with, but maybe it takes you in a, another direction of thinking that you hadn't thought about before. But, uh, if this, if we are the, the, the end of this, the way that the species is now, then to our robot overlords, I say, what's up? Uh, you know, I, um, uh, I mean no harm and, uh, <laughs> but I'll never be a Borg. There, I said it. I will never, ever integrate with machines. Not interested. Uh, and even though I love, I love science fiction. You know, it's just 
man, that's terrifying. So anyway, sorry, sorry to end on a <laughs> on a bummer note. <laughs> it's just something that's been on my mind for a while because I've been seeing it pop up so much online and I'm like, man, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about artificial intelligence. I want to talk about uh, you know, Chat GPT and all these other things and uh but mainly I kind of want to just discuss my thoughts on why humanity may be moving too fast and and we should put the brakes on stuff. So I hope you feel the same way. Hope you guys have a fantastic week. I hope my little Ant-Man, uh, uh, you know, not re rundown, my Ant-Man rundown. I hope that's helpful. I hope if you go see the movie that you enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, as always, I appreciate you. Love you guys. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, drink your water, stay safe, and love you all. Talk to you later. Bye.